to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. I hope you're having a good week, and if not, let me keep you company for an hour. Hopefully, help you escape life for just a bit. I have two great stories for you this week, folks, and one surprise for you at the end of the show. Remember to check the show notes for trigger warnings, and away we go. First up this week is a story by author Jeanette Brown. This is one of my favorite types of horror stories, one that leaves you with implications that are very unsettling. Without further ado, here is Transference. The wind was cool and crisp, like the first bite of a perfect apple. It lifted her hair in long, slithering strands, leaves brown and curled like skeletal hands skittered around her feet as she walked. Gray clouds gathered restlessly in the sky, coating the brilliant trees and festive decorations in colorless shadow. The air smelled damp. She was filled with the pervasive feeling of decay and ending. Everything around her was dying. Or maybe that was just her frame of mind, leading her thoughts to morbidity and despair. The paper bag she carried was bigger than needed for its contents, which rolled around unevenly and made the bag feel like it was always on the verge of tipping out of her arms. Every few steps, she adjusted it, the crumpling sound of the paper complementing the crunch of leaves beneath her feet. The overly large bag was the only size left at the store. Occult shops were never more popular than on Halloween, and she had arrived after the place had been ransacked by people looking for something spooky for the holiday. Luckily, the supplies she needed were simple and often overlooked by those seeking bigger thrills. She wasn't sure she needed the supplies, really. This was a yearly tradition, and certainly the supplies weren't used up entirely each year. But she didn't remember seeing anything left over after the ritual last year, and she hadn't dared to go back to the house before the appointed day to check. She couldn't really believe she was going back to the house at all. Yes, there was the clause in the ritual that stated what would happen if she didn't return. But what if that was just a rumor to scare everyone into complying with the rules? She could drop her bag and run the other direction. She could take a chance and maybe... She could be free forever. A small flame deep within her mind surged with these thoughts. Yes, it called. It urged her to throw caution to the wind. But she could not listen to the flame. Its only wish was her downfall. She shook her head, an old habit now, imagining that the movement shook the flame out. She would go to the house like she was supposed to. She would do the ritual like she was supposed to. She had made a pact. 
Now she took a turn that led her away from the more heavily trafficked streets. More leaves were laying on the sidewalk, not yet cleared away by other feet. The yards she passed became wilder and more overgrown. The houses more run down and broken. She came to a stop in front of the crown jewel of the unsavory neighborhood. It was an old Victorian at the bottom of a cul-de-sac, long abandoned and neglected. Shutters hung haphazardly from shattered windows, paint peeled in long curls like rotting flowers. The front door was askew on its hinges, covered in graffiti made by teens too scared to go any further. It was the epitome of a haunted house. Chuckling dryly at the thought, she pushed her way through the door, swollen on its unaligned hinges, and then shut it as firmly as possible behind her. She piled a few broken boards and broken pieces of furniture in front of it. By now, the house's reputation was so bad it was unlikely anyone would come trespassing, even on Halloween night. But it was better to be safe. It wouldn't do to have the ritual disturbed. She slowly traversed the grand stairway, rotting across from the front entrance. Although she was intimately familiar with every inch of this house, she wanted to be careful. Getting hurt would ruin everything. She would never live it down, so to speak. Safely up the stairs, she moved down the hallway towards the master bedroom, studying the pictures lining the hallway as she passed. A few still hung, though their glass was shattered and they dangled by a single fraying string. Most were cracked and scattered on the hallway floor. Almost all were corrupted with mold and something else. A dark ooze that seemed to move in the corner of the eye, like no natural substance on the earth. These images were not of happy memories. She kicked a picture that had fallen to the floor. The wooden frame was soft and mildewy, collapsing under the pressure of her kick and crumpling the damp photograph inside. It felt good. Her slow procession ended at the master bedroom. From the doorway, she sadly observed the evidence of last year's ritual. The smudged circle, the floor inside stained incomprehensibly, surrounded with small lumps of melted wax. Good thing she had gotten the candles. She glanced at the watch on her wrist and saw it was only just five o'clock. Seven hours to go. She probably could have waited longer before coming here, but what was the point? She dropped her bag on the sagging bed, ignoring the insects that crawled out at the disruption. She stared disinterestedly as a cockroach scuttled over her foot. Sighing heavily, she pulled out the candles and put them in the places of the lumps of wax from candles past, using her lighter to melt the existing wax into holders for the new candles. Then she refreshed the drawn circle with a lump of charcoal, another souvenir from the occult shop. When she had checked out, the man behind the counter asked her if she had some salt handy, 
to protect her during whatever she was planning on doing. The man seemed suspicious, as if he could tell she wasn't going to perform incorrectly a silly internet ritual like the rest of his clientele that day. She had smiled at him politely and nodded. She didn't tell him that she wouldn't be needing any salt. With the circle set up, there was just one more thing to do. She pulled the last item from the paper bag. This hadn't come from the occult shop, but from the liquor store next door. A handle of vodka. She had been drunk to the brink of unconsciousness the very first time she had done the ritual. And so now, it was a part of it. Besides, it helped the transition go smoother. The time passed slowly. The gray light coming through the shattered windows faded to black as the sun slowly set behind the clouds. The level of vodka in the bottle sank with it. Finally, an electronic chirping from her watch stirred her from a drunken haze. Ten minutes to midnight. Time to get things started. It felt like she was dragging her limbs as she moved with the lighter from one candle to the next, lighting them. The flickering candlelight sent shadows into seizures on the walls, turned by her drunkenness into monsters with pointed teeth lunging at her. She laughed into their faces, knowing that soon she would be safely out of their reach. Her watch chirped again. Two minutes. She pulled a shard of glass from one of the windows, then stumbled into the circle. Standing was no longer an option, and she collapsed into a heap to the floor. She gripped the shard of glass hard to keep it in her grasp, and it sliced her palm and fingers. Blood flowed rapidly from her hand, and she stared at it in a daze. It wasn't where the cut was supposed to go. She thought of the progression of scars up her right forearm, hidden by her sweater. But blood was blood, and she supposed it would do. She was too drunk to do anything further. She smeared her blood on the floor and, just like the first time, combatively slurred, Come on, then. Just as her watch ticked to midnight. She was surrounded by dozens of people, pale and translucent in the candlelight. She stared up at them for a moment, smiling, and then dissolved into the house. The woman on the floor lay still, no spark of life in her. Seconds later, the woman convulsed as if electrocuted and screamed. Tears gushed from her eyes. She tried desperately to get to her feet, but the alcohol in her blood and the disorientation from the transfer made her head spin too violently. She vomited in between heaves. She screamed desperate pleas for help, for mercy, for freedom, for death. She begged for anything but what was coming. A single ghostly figure stepped forward from the crowd into the circle, 
It touched the woman's blood smeared on the floor and vanished. Once again, the woman collapsed into the stillness of death. And once again, seconds later, she stirred with new life. This time, she sat up slowly and calmly, though still swaying from the effects of the liquor. No new tears painted her face, or screams filled the air. You are free for hissed a chorus of voices from nowhere and everywhere. You must return again on the same night when passage is made possible. If you do not, if you do not, if you betray the past, if you betray the past, you will be pulled down eternity for an eternity the spirit inside the woman nodded her heavy head. Animating a physical body after so long outside of one was difficult, and the alcohol wasn't helping. I will return, her hoarse voice choked out. Being trapped in this house for eternity was unpleasant, but she would take it over hell. With that last thought, She collapsed into a deep, dreamless sleep. A small spark inside her fought to break through, but was buried under the effects of alcohol and blood magic. Tomorrow, that spark would be nothing but a small nuisance. She would walk out of this house, into the sunlight, and live a life again. next story of the night is by author Lewis Haas. And if you're a little too squeamish for the squishier sounds I sometimes use on the show, I would maybe rethink this one. But if you have an iron stomach, this is County Road. It was 2.24 in the morning when the red and blue lights of the police cruiser illuminated a long-forgotten back road, and the field, overgrown with tall grass and thistle, that seemed to have swallowed it up whole. Through the glare and the brightness, the officer could just make out the skeletons of an old rusted sedan and an archaic tumble-down barn. Nature, it appeared, was intent on reclaiming both as her own. God damn the Indian summer, the officer muttered, wiping beads of sweat from his forehead. Although it was mid-October, it felt more like mid-August, and the station, strapped for money, had neither the financial means nor the goodwill intentions of repairing the cruiser's cooling system. In addition, The warm breeze, which moments earlier had provided some relief from the heat, had stopped suddenly. The officer became acutely aware of the silence and stillness, and also how rapidly and how unwittingly it had enveloped all and everything. 
The stagnant air, thick with midges and heavy with humidity, only added to the young man's swelling sense of unease, apprehension, foreboding. As he exited his stinking, hot, stifling vehicle, and as he approached the decaying wreckage of the sedan, the officer could feel a sting in his nose. The sting, which grew stronger with every step, had begun quickly and ferociously to burn his nostrils and tear his eyes. Slowly, with some regret, he unlatched his gun from its holster. For the entire six years he had been a member of the Oneida police force, his gun had laid dormant in that holster. Locked and loaded, of course, but dormant. The idea that the weapon existed, and so close by his side, had previously served him well and had been for him both a silent partner and a sincere source of comfort. For Onida was a small and mostly rural community, and though young, the officer was considered by most who knew him to be an old soul, and by nature a kind-hearted, soft-spoken diplomat. His short career with the police department had served to enhance not only his congenial temperament, but also his intuitive ability to negotiate potentially combustible situations with peace and with reconciliation, rather than with force or with violence. And in a town of only 1,500 souls, and six of those souls being police officers, circumstances requiring actual weapon use had been incredibly few and extraordinarily far between. However, the officer knew without any doubt that within the next few moments, that would all change. Whomever or whatever was lurking outside was there not to parlay or to exchange pleasantries. Carnage, he felt certain, awaited. The cold steel of his Colt 45 had never felt so warm or seemed so reassuring. The slow, short walk from the cruiser to the sedan had seemed an eternity. By the time the officer had his hand upon the silver handle of the driver's door, his insides, guts, bowels, intestines, were a turbulent mess. His panic and trepidation, combined with the putrid odor invading his nostrils, had managed completely, if briefly, to overwhelm the officer. For a few long seconds, he thought he might even vomit, right where he stood. However, imagining himself explaining to his old paunchy-faced and humorless chief the dried puke smell emanating from his Onida PD uniform shirt and shoes, cured quickly his nausea. With his heart racing, the officer swung open the car's door. Immediately, he had to close his eyes. The stench that seconds ago had almost malfunctioned his innards was now so immense, so intense, that it was impossible for him to even keep his eyes open. The smell, which had a chemical sulfur stink to it, washed over his face quickly before dissipating into the hot stickiness of the autumn night. Moments later, the officer managed to open his eyes, and to keep them open long enough to see what was sitting in the driver's seat. From what he could determine, through the fog of his own fear, and through the haze of the squad car's red and blue illumination, there was a body, human apparently, but headless, 
and bloated and submerged by its own decay into the torn brown leather seat. For just an instant, the officer was filled with relief. Other than the savage stench, a dead body, even a headless rotting corpse, was a homicide investigation at best, an environmental hazard at worst, but he knew any respite from the reality of the situation was both ignorant and dangerous. Furthermore, to snub the ominousness of the scene unfolding before him was naive, cowardly, and an unforgivably foolish rookie mistake. It was difficult for the officer to identify where exactly the decapitation of the rotting corpse had occurred. Maggots crawled and wiggled around the neck, as well as in and out of the dark crimson blood, still trickling from the gaping hole. Also, to complicate matters further, there was a brown crust of dried blood and goop, haloing the fresher areas of the wound. A stained blue and gray flannel covered what remained of the torso, bulging and trembling severely at the gut, as if a water balloon, filled to bursting, had somehow been deposited inside the body. Protruding from the sleeves of the flannel were what the officer assumed to be arm bones, white and shellacked in some places, red and fleshy and dripping with blood and writhing with maggots in other places. Yet, ultimately, it was not the smell or even the appearance of the decaying carcass that sent the young deputy stumbling and flailing from the vehicle. It was, surprisingly, the sound erupting from the neck of the corpse, like thousands of bloody bubbles popping that unnerved the officer and propelled him like some errant wobbly gun-toting and gun-dropping missile back to his own vehicle. Somehow, the officer made it back to his squad car, but only after checking, and then double-checking, that all the doors were locked and all windows up, was he able to steady his breathing and regain a portion of his past composure. As he contemplated his next move, he noticed the thermometer in the car was steadily dropping. Normally, he would have welcomed the cooler air. Normally, he would have assumed the conditioning had been miraculously repaired. But of course, nothing that had unfolded within the last few minutes had been normal. As his breathing slowed, and as he prepared to radio for backup, the officer struggled to recall how he had even come upon that back road, that field, that barn. Vaguely, he remembered a call coming in on the walkie, then static, and then no reception. For what seemed a very long while, he sat, completely puzzled shivering violently and breathing with difficulty. He knew, of course, that he must call whatever it was he just witnessed, homicide, suicide, accidental decapitation and mutilation, into the station. Yet, his mind and his body seemed disconnected. 
It was as if whatever he had seen and whatever he had smelled and whatever he had heard out there in that sedan had both metaphorically and literally unnerved him. Somehow through his dread and through his fear, he managed with trembling hands to reach for his walkie. Yet, even before he made the request for backup, he knew it was hopeless. No one would come, for no one could hear him. His voice, even his own ears, were no longer his own. His words, which had always served him so well, and which in almost all previous entanglements had protected him as much as any shield or bulletproof vest ever could, had completely and utterly failed him. For when he opened his mouth to speak, the only sound he could produce was a useless, phlegmy static. Out his windshield, he registered something moving through the rear window of the old sedan. Somehow, as if on autopilot, the officer managed to open his car door. His body, mummy-like in its movements, fell hard to the ground. Either through instinct or through a burst of adrenaline or through a sheer will to survive, the officer managed to not only find and to unload his weapon into the rear of the corroded sedan. As he lay on the ground, all his energy seemingly spent, his eyes adjusted to the dark. As he scanned over the field, he was able to discern the skeletal shape of the barn. Vines wrapped around the silhouette of the frame, like a snake around the helpless body of its prey. Suddenly, the officer could sense life all around him in the aphotic atmosphere. Cold life. Life void of meaning and filled with malice. He could feel the cold finger of death caress his cheek and trace a chill down his spine. Everything in his gut told him to run, but... He couldn't even move, let alone run. It was as if the creeping plants in the field had pushed their way through the gravel on the road and swathed around his uniform-issued boots. In a meaningless last-ditch effort, the officer attempted to scream for help. But of course, even his screams and moans had been replaced by phlegmy static. He looked down towards his feet in horror and astonishment as a thorny vine braided and intertwined itself around his ankles. Blood trickled through his pant leg like sticky sap from a tree. The briars dug deeper and climbed higher until the lower half of his body was completely enveloped in their nefarious trap. Using his hands, he clawed at the vines and tried to free himself. He only crept higher and dug deeper. Blood glimmered in the faint light of the stars as it ran down the vines, pooled at his feet, and seeped through the gravel into the thirsty earth below. Soon enough, 
The creeper plants had entombed his body from shoulder to toe. The more he attempted to fight them, the faster they moved and the more rapid his blood flowed. The vicious plant had ascended all the way to and into his neck before he passed out from pain. In that brief reprieve, the young officer dreamt. It was his fifth birthday, and he was sitting at a table, staring at the colorful candles on his cake as they illuminated a warm light on his baby face. Surrounding him were all the members of his family, but none of them had faces. Instead, it looked like someone scraped off their noses and filled in their eye sockets with skin. The only feature left on their face was their mouth, which hung open, dark and toothless like the entrance to a cave that swallowed all light and left nothing in return. Tears of hot wax streamed down his round cheeks when his eyes snapped open to headlights rolling over him. When he regained consciousness, he felt what he thought were actual tears streaming down his face. But he knew, even before he could taste the metallic tang on his tongue, that it was warm blood rolling down his cheek from a thorn that had made its home just below his left eye. An overwhelming sense of relief overcame his blood-soaked body as moving headlights grew closer. His attempt to scream for help was cut off by spiny thorns suturing his mouth closed and barbed vines tightening around his neck like a noose. Immense white-hot pain traveled from his wrists to his fingertips as the skin peeled like wallpaper, revealing a hidden network of complex wiring and tendons. Breathing now came in exasperated gargles of blood that oozed out of the officer's mouth. For a brief, agonizing moment, he recognized his fate. Before the grip of his hungry captor squeezed his throat so hard, the arteries burst into a geyser of rich red liquid that poured out of his freshly severed torso and onto the ground. His head tumbled off the gravel road into a drainage ditch, leaving behind it a trail of blood so warm that steam came off it. Satisfied, the vines loosened their grip on the officer's now dead, mutilated body, and shriveled back into their subterranean home. So, did you spot the cranberry sauce? For those of you who have no idea what I am talking about, um, this week, I posted a little short video of me making some of the sound effects from the this episode. I'm not going to even say which story, but I was using a bowl of cranberry sauce, just so you know. 
But you can check that out on Instagram and in the Facebook group. Uh, I think those are the only two places I posted it. And speaking of social media, my surprise for you is so over the years, well, it's only been two years, but over the two years that I've been doing this show every once in a while, or pretty frequently, honestly, I get lots of emails about it and I try to answer them when I can. Um, ask me about advice on how to start a podcast, um, how to run a podcast, things like that. And one of my biggest, biggest, uh, uh, pieces of advice is to uh, create your first episode, record it, edit it, complete it, and then to throw it away. Not immediately, of course. Send that episode to friends and family who you trust will give you actual uh, constructive criticism, who will give you real feedback, um, who will not just pat you on the butt and say, good job, honey. Um, someone who give it to someone who will give you really good feedback and that it'll be constructive because you also don't want the other hand where they're just like, oh, it sucks. And I'm your rude friend who says that everything sucks. Uh, cause we all have those every once in a while in our lives. <laughs> and I know I did. Um, but I had a great few group of friends who I sent this to and from here, is how I made the show better. I mean, my first few episodes still weren't very good, but I did follow my own advice in the beginning. And this coming up, I thought I had lost it, honestly, because it's not on my computer anymore. And I don't know why. I don't know if I deleted it out of frustration and shame when I got my constructive criticism back. It was all very good and helped a lot. I was just embarrassed because I'm not very good at Well, before I had this podcast that was very, very public. Anyway, I was very bad about putting myself out there. And so when I did, and I got even a little bit of criticism, I was kind of like, oh, I'm so stupid. I'm one of those people who, if I'm not perfect at something the first time I get very upset. Um, it's not a good thing. It's something I'm working on. I've worked on it a lot actually. And so I think I deleted it. I like rage deleted it off my computer cause I can't find it. And again, thought it was gone forever but I was going through the Google drive of an old email address that I don't use anymore to find something completely unrelated. And voila, there it was. The first never uploaded episode of Scare You to Sleep that has never seen the light of day. And I thought, well, I posted about it on social media. That's how the cranberry sauce was tethered into this conversation because it really was, it was social media this week that I posted about finding my first episode and how this is why I tell people to throw it out because it's honestly so bad. And I had a lot of people message me and on the different platforms say, you should post it anyway. Someone had a very funny idea and I can't remember your name right now because I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but someone had a very funny idea that I should just post it as a regular episode and do an intro that acted like I was just real excited about this new episode and not say anything about it being my terrible, terrible first episode, <laughs> which would be very funny. But I feel like a lot of people wouldn't get it and they'd be like, oh, wow, I'm, I am not on board for this show anymore. It's awful. Bye. So I thought I'd tack it on to the end of this episode. Uh, so this is kind of my outro for this episode. I won't do an outro after that one. Because I think I did an outro on that one. You guys, I didn't even listen to it all the way through before I'm posting it on here because it was hard to listen to. 
A lot of people talk about how it's hard to listen to your own voice, and it is, but I've gotten used to it over the years from just editing, but this was like a different level of bad, and I didn't, I couldn't listen to the whole thing. Oh, wow. Well, uh, here you go. This is the never released to the public, only heard by my friends and family ever, very bad first episode Use this as an example of why you should, when you start a podcast, do a whole first episode and then throw it out because this, this baby sure got thrown out with the bathwater. I don't know if that phrase works in this situation, but I'm going to keep it there. Okay, everyone, I'll, I'm going to go ahead and say sweet dreams right now because I don't I don't know if I said that at the end of that one. We'll see. We'll all learn together. How did I begin the show? How did I end the show? How has the show grown? We'll see. Let me know. Talk to me on social media about it and tell me about your first episode of your podcast and how bad it was to make me feel better. Okay. Bye everyone. Go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. Oh, real quick. Me again. Um, I lied. I am popping back in. So the only thing I changed about this was that I turned the volume up because when I sent this to my friends, you could literally barely hear my voice. So that's the only thing I'm going to edit about it is turning it up. Also, clearly this this story, it's limes. It has been on my show, but that was a completely redone episode. Um, that's why I started the show with the O'Mail Swamp Tour because I was so mad at the story limes, even though it wasn't the story's fault. It was my fault for being bad at but being new at editing and new at recording and also for recording on the wrong side of my microphone, which was why it was so quiet because I wasn't talking into the correct side. <laughs> oh, so much embarrassment, everyone. Anyway, this is Limes. Yes, I know this has already been on the show. Please don't tell me that. No, you did release this. It's a totally different redone episode that I released on the show. Also, the only editing is me making it louder. Okay, bye! Good evening, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. I will be reading to you a creepy story to lull you off to dreamland so that the monster under your bed can get some me time. Tonight we learn that sometimes you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. I present to you, Lime. When I was 16, I had a summer job delivering groceries for the local mom and pop market. It was 1994, and the AC in my 1976 mustard yellow station wagon was not keeping up with the blistering July heat. I sat in the break room of the store, putting my hair up and laying some wet paper towels on my neck that I had gotten from the bathroom. As much as I begged my manager not to, he insisted I wear the polyester brown pants and orange polo shirt that was the standard uniform. I tried to tell him that the inevitable pit stains I would suffer at the hands of my sauna of a car would be off-putting to customers, but he wouldn't hear it. I was just starting to cool off when my boss man barreled in the swinging door. Hey, Steph, we got another delivery for you. He waved a receipt in front of my face. I didn't even try to hide the annoyance on my face. Come on, kiddo. You could be out chasing carts all day like Robbie. Plus, it's only one item, and it isn't too far. Too far ended up being about 15 miles out of town. 
The drive only took about 20 minutes, but that's a road trip in small town time. Sticky beads of sweat were running down both sides of my face, and my throat was burning from the smell of my engine protesting the heat. I glared at the box of limes in my back seat through my rearview mirror. That was all the customer ordered. A single, goddamn, 20-pound box of limes. What could possibly prompt someone to order an entire box of limes on the hottest day of the year? They weren't even on sale, so that ruled out obsessive couponers, those housewives who spent their lives trying to save a penny on a gallon of hand soap. And considering we were a dry county, I doubted it was some sort of last-minute margarita emergency. After passing mile after mile of cornfields and turnip patches, I turned my car into a dirt road leading up to what looked like an old ranch that had been out of commission for a long time. It was lined with broken wooden fences, overgrown weeds baked by the sun, bales of rusting chicken wire were scattered off to either side. My car was creating a massive dust cloud, but through the haze I made out a two-story farmhouse about a hundred yards away. That's when I realized it wasn't just dust I was trying to see through. Steam and smoke bellowed out of the hood. My engine had finally had it. I turned off my car, glaring at the house. I hoped the owners could spare a cup of coolant when I got to the door, or at least their phone, so I could call my dad. Peeling myself off the vinyl seats and into the dusty heat, I grabbed my citrusy cargo and headed off. The distance hadn't seemed so bad when I was driving, but now it looked further away with every step. The box just kept getting heavier. The heat was bringing out the oil and the lime skin. Their perfume-like smell hit me in the face, stinging my eyes like they were mocking me. Doesn't everything feel so personal when you're a teenager? When I finally got to the porch of the old house, sweat was running into my eyes. I dramatically dropped the box and banged on the screen door. A scraggly man, who looked to be about in his late 20s, opened the interior door. He stared at me with a confused look on his face. You're not, Robbie. He wrung his hands together. Um... No, I'm Stephanie. I brought your box of limes, and I was hoping I could... I thought they would send Robbie. He was agitated. No, Robbie backed his car into Miss Jamie's mailbox last week, so they took him off deliveries. Also, I was really wondering if I could use your phone. My what? He looked at me wildly. Looking back, it was definitely stupid to insist that the irate and unkempt man clearly did not want me to be there, let me inside his house. Your phone, it's just my car died and I need to call my dad to come pick me up. You see, he said through clenched teeth, I ordered this heavy box thinking they would send him for sure. What are they thinking sending a girl out to the middle of nowhere with a 20 pound box? His eyes darted around the yard behind me. I mean, he gets off work at six if you want to hang out with him. Are you a friend of his older brother's or something? That seemed to make him chill out. He held the screen door open. Come on in. You can use the phone. The man led me to the kitchen and gestured for me to sit at a table that was nestled between the counter and the back door. He picked up the lemon yellow phone off the base on the wall and listened, like he wasn't sure if it was going to have a dial tone or not then handed the receiver to me. What's the number? 
He turned his back, his fingers poised to dial for me. Oh, I can just do it myself. I had known since kindergarten not to give my phone number to strangers. He didn't move. He just stood there, silent. After 30 seconds or so of this awkward standoff, I practically screamed out the number. I was so annoyed. My teenage brain was more embarrassed and irritated than scared. I was obviously bothering the guy. Plus, he was letting me call my dad. The killers on 2020 never let their victims just call for help. Right? It's ringing. I looked up and said sheepishly to him. Robert's Manufacturing. This is Joyce. How may I help you? An overly cheerful voice answered. Mrs. Bergman, it's Steph. Is my dad there? It's really important. The man was now seating himself across the table from me, watching me. Sure, honey. Let me get him for you. Trey, your daughter's on the phone. She says it's urgent. I heard my dad's deep voice. Though I couldn't make out what he was saying, just knowing he was there made me feel so much better. I realized I was a lot more nervous than I thought I had been. Hold on, honey bunch. He's on a call. It'll be just a minute. Mrs. Bergman's chirping voice annoyed me, and before I could argue that my call was more important, she had put me on hold. The man started to drum his fingers on the filthy table. I'm sorry. My dad is on a call. His secretary put me on hold. He had creepy pale blue eyes. They seemed to bore a hole in me. I felt like he was watching me to make sure I didn't reveal something to my dad. What that was, I didn't know. I couldn't help but feeling like I needed to lie, though. I just didn't know what to lie about. A minute turned to two, or at least it felt that way. I could tell the man felt the same way. He got up suddenly and began pacing the small kitchen. I focused my attention on the table in front of me. Just pick up, Dad. Come on, please. After five minutes had passed, I knew my dad had forgotten that I had called. He's probably in the shop and didn't see the little red light blinking on the phone. Mrs. Bergman had to leave early every Thursday and had probably taken off right after she put me on hold. I was frozen, though, and I couldn't bring myself to put the phone down. It was like I could see through that little red light blinking in my dad's office. I could see all that was safe. Did that mean I wasn't safe? Just as the thought crossed my mind, I was suddenly ripped from my chair. The man's bony fingers dug into my arm. I yelled and tried to pull away, but his grasp was too strong. I tried desperately to grab onto anything in the kitchen. I finally turned my head and bit him on the hand as hard as I could. He let go and I fell to the floor. I crawled toward the back door, and on the way I grabbed the cord for the phone. I maniacally screamed, started screaming for my dad, hoping to God that he would pick up the phone. The man grabbed me by the ankle and pulled. I was on all fours, so that caused me to come crashing straight down on my chin. He dragged me across the floor. I was dazed and couldn't even think to kick very hard. He stood me up and shoved me in a closet. My forehead banged hard on the coat rack. My ears were ringing, and I slunk down to the ground as he slammed the closet door shut. I was in complete darkness. I heard the sound of heavy furniture being dragged across the floor. 
than being forced up against the door. I was trapped. After a few minutes, I heard a truck start up and drive away. I tried with all my might to make that door budge. I thrust my shoulder into the door as hard as I could over and over again until I heard a loud pop, followed by the worst pain I had ever felt. Despite the pain, somehow I fell asleep. I woke up to sirens and men's voices. I screamed as loud as I could, which wasn't very. My throat was coated with dust and I was incredibly dehydrated. Thankfully, though, an officer heard me. Over here was followed by whatever was in front of the door being moved. My parents were waiting outside by the ambulance. When they saw me, my mother broke down in tears and my father began yelling about finding whoever did this. After all that time had passed, my face had turned into a horror show. I was bleeding from my chin and my forehead and everything was swollen and bruised. I was laying in my hospital bed when Robbie's mom came rushing in. She had red hair like Robbie did. In my morphine haze, I could only make out every other thing she said to me. She grabbed my hand and begged me to tell her where Robbie was. He had disappeared without a trace. Well, both of us had. We were both off at six and neither of us had come home. When both our parents contacted the store, my manager told them I had gone out to the country to make a delivery. He suggested that Robbie must have met up with me and we were probably off being teenagers out in a ditch bank somewhere. When they saw my car at the end of the dirt road, they thought they would find us both. When they saw no trace of either of us, they came back to town and called the police so they could search the house. I told them everything I could about the man, about how he had asked about Robbie and was expecting him when I arrived. Everyone was confused. His parents had no idea who this man could be or why he would have wanted Robbie. I didn't know why the man hadn't killed me or maybe he thought he had. Maybe he thought I would die out there in that hot and dusty house alone, in the dark. A week later, I received my first lime. It was sitting on the front porch when I got home after a much-needed day of watching bad movies and eating junk food at a friend's house. I picked it up, not thinking much of it. The next one came only a few days after that. It was on the desk in my room. I ran downstairs and told my parents. They contacted the police. The police had already searched the old house, but they searched again. I told them that the man had to have gone back for the box. I knew there was no way he would have risked going to our one and only grocery store just to buy a box of limes to mess with me. They searched the house and again found nothing. Less than nothing, because I was right. The box of limes was gone. For months after that, I was tormented. There never seemed to be any rhyme or reason for why he was doing this. I'd find them on the hood of my car, in our mailbox, once in a coat pocket. They began showing up rotted and soft. 
I was able to smell them before I saw them. That overly sweet smell of rotting fruit. Every time I told my parents, they told the police, and nothing was found. Not even a shoe print outside my window. I tried going to Robbie's parents, but my ramblings about finding fruit everywhere just upset his mother, and his father asked me to leave. After senior year, I attended college in Alaska. I wanted to get as far away as I possibly could from my stalker. One day, during my first Alaskan winter, I received a package from home. Well, from my home address anyway. It wasn't from home. It was from him. Inside, nestled in a bed of fake cotton snow, was a black and shriveled lime. Did you know that there are approximately 100 limes in a 20-pound box? During the previous year and a half, I had probably received about 90-something. I finally understood his message. I walked down the hallway of my dorm to the shared phone. My stomach turned sour, and I felt bile burn the back of my throat. Luckily, it was late on Friday. Most of my floor was out partying, so I didn't have to wait my turn. I dialed my parents' number. Hello? My mother answered. Nothing in her voice indicated anything was amiss, but she has a great phone voice. Mom? Did they find Robbie? My voice was shaky. I knew the answer. Oh, oh God, Stephanie, how did you hear about that so fast? Your father just got off the phone with one of his friends down at the precinct. They thought we should know. You're so far away, though, honey. You have nothing to... It was the limes, Mom. They were counting down. He was letting me know that Robbie was still alive. I could have done something. I could have helped him somehow. No, honey, this is in no way your fault. Her soothing voice was just too far away to work, though. I told him when Robbie was off work. I made him let me inside. I could have just left. I could have hitchhiked back to the store and told him some creep was asking about him. I should have called the police instead of Dad. I was hyperventilating. All I wanted was my mom to hold me, but I had selfishly run away. I ran away instead of trying to find him. I hung up the phone and ran down the hallway to my room. I curled up in bed and stayed there for days. It took me 23 years to look up what had happened to Robbie. I couldn't bring myself to know what sort of state his body had been found in, what the man had done to him. Robbie Jensen was found propped up against the door of the grocery store we had worked at together. He was wrapped in plastic sheeting. Our old manager found him around 4 a.m. when he arrived to work the opening shift. He was missing several teeth. Some had been removed. Some were broken. The tips of both his index fingers were gone. One of them was almost healed. The other was fresh. He had been 
sexually assaulted with foreign objects. Likely one of them was a broken bottle. Robbie had also been castrated post-mortem. He died from a gunshot wound to the head. I never wanted to know all that. Even without all that knowledge rattling around in my brain, I've had to attend years of therapy. They say I have an extreme case of survivor's guilt as well as the paranoia the stalking left behind. I never wanted to know. I have to know. Today, my son came home from school and handed me a letter. He said it was in his locker, but it had been addressed to me. Probably something from his counselor about his English grade. Before it reached my hand, I could smell it. That citrusy perfume. The envelope was doused in it. Inside was a receipt for a 20-pound box of limes. At the top, in slanted handwriting, was my son's name. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to submit a story to be read on the podcast or have any questions, feel free to email me at scareyoutosleep at gmail.com. Music is Mist on the Moor, Darkest Child, and Water Lily by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com. Sweet dreams. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out, and we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now. Every town has its dark history. Hometown Ghost Stories is a paranormal podcast that goes town to town all across the globe, exploring the world's most haunted places, tapping into the dusty archives and the darkest corners to bring you the most terrifying stories of real people and their harrowing experiences. Hometown Ghost Stories dives into the history of haunted locations and investigates why and how these places earned their terrifying reputation. Rob, Dave, and Jesse go live every Tuesday night after an uninterrupted documentary-style breakdown on the case, followed by an open discussion with live viewers. Subscribe today to listen to Hometown Ghost Stories on your preferred podcast platform or watch the video version on YouTube and now Spotify. Head on over to the Bloody FM Podcast Network and check out Hometown Ghost Stories, if you're brave enough. (laughs) 